All right, great. So if that means everyone has one, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 9 to 12 today. Verses 9 to 12. So either in your Bible or on your electronic device, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Follow with me as I read those verses and then we'll pray and we will get into it together. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we've commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And Father, we pray that you would help us to not only understand uh, what your message is to us through Paul's message to the Thessalonians, but Lord, we would also be those who actually do it. Lord, we know that we are actually deceiving ourselves if we hear your word and we don't do it. If it is indeed your word, Lord, you are worthy to be obeyed and followed. And so we believe that. We believe that this is your word, not just for the Thessalonians, but for us. And so we pray, Father, that you give us wisdom, you give us strength, you give us power to actually walk and live out these things, Lord. We pray, Lord, that as we think about how much you love us, Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding. That, Lord, we would know and believe that we are indeed loved by you and that you want, to, you want us to experience that love and express that love in every aspect of our lives. So we commit today to you in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. 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 So I think it's fair to say that in our culture, we exalt freedom above anything else. And I'm not talking about American culture, just in case you know. I'm talking about just in the West. We see freedom, individual freedom, as sort of the highest mark. And we tend to define freedom as freedom from responsibility. We, we don't want to be accountable or responsible. We, we want to be free to do whatever we want to do. There's some good about that in the sense that it's good that we have the freedom to worship God without fear of of sort of overt government persecution. I'm very thankful for that freedom. But when the scripture talks about freedom, when the scripture talks about specifically the freedom that we have through Christ, it's not just a freedom uh, from something. It is a freedom from something. It's a freedom from sin. But it's also a freedom to something. That God actually sets us free to live in a way that we are actually designed to live. He sets us free to love. And actually, in all of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul's beginning to deal with this thing, especially the first 12 verses. He's beginning to deal with this reality that we are called to be live in a freedom to love. Last week, we talked about what we called a sanctified sexuality. 
and how God calls Jesus' followers to set us, be set apart sexually, that they live by his standards because they believe those standards are an expression of his love. And so they, they keep marriage to one man, one woman, uh, I'll keep, sorry, sex to one man, one woman in marriage for life. And so this week we talk about now how that looks in the workplace. What does it look like for, how, how does that affect how we work? What our work looks like on an everyday basis. It's important for us to get our head around this because, again, we're not just talking about moral obligations. We're talking about an expression of God's love. And in a real sense, we're talking about gifts that God has given to mankind. Interesting, one of the things that, or something that both sex, our sexuality, and our calling to work have in common is they're both gifts that God gave to humanity before humanity fell. So when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them perfect without sin. He gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, he, he says, look, this gift of sexuality is, is some part of his original plan. And again, before they fall, what does he say to Adam? Adam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tend the garden. I want you to name the animals. He gave him work. Work is a good thing. The problem is because we are fallen, because we are this side of Adam's fall and our choosing to follow suit, we, we tend to not see these things always in a good way or not use these things in a good way. And this is what happens with work. It's, it's, it's amazing how many people over the years, specifically males for some reason, tend to kind of either fall on one end of laziness, they just don't want to really do what they should do, they don't want to meet their responsibilities, or they fall in the, the category of just overwork. They're overworking to be rich, usually. And yet God says, no, there's something, there's a bigger reason why he's given us work. Yes, to benefit us, but also that we might be a benefit to others. And so when we think about what it means as Jesus followers in work, Paul wants to unpack this and make sure that we know what it looks like to, to show God's love at work. And so I'm going to kind of give you three main things about God's love that are really important. And so follow along with, with me as we go through these. First in verses 9 and 10, it, it, when he, we talk about God's love, we talk about a love that's always growing. God's love is perfect, it's constant, it's who he is. But as God's working that love in us, and we're beginning to express that love, we are growing in the expression of that love. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, concerning brotherly love, that's those, that two words are one Greek word, uh, kind of connecting to a famous American city. Anybody know what it is? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Concerning Philadelphia, he says, brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You're taught by God to love one another. Now, I, I think Paul, Paul here is, is, is not saying, hey, I'm not going to, I don't need to talk about love with you guys. He's saying, look, you've already shown that you know something about God's love. He says, I don't need to kind of reteach you. I just want to exhort you to apply this even more specifically. I want to exhort you to, to take what you know and be more intentional about how you use it, how you respond to it. And I love this phrase that he uses, being taught by God, because when we think about this, when we look at the scriptures, we see that all three members of the Trinity are intentional about teaching us about love. God, in his full headship, shows us about love. 
In the Old Testament, we see God the Father speaking to Israel in Leviticus 19.18 when He says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, He says. And, and the Father demonstrates this kind of love. A love that doesn't want to take vengeance. love that wants to think what's best for its neighbor. He demonstrates this love According to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God doesn't just command love. The Father didn't just command love. He demonstrated what that love looks like. God the Son also taught us about love. We read this verse last week, John 13.34 and 35. Great verses. Verses are, are worthy to commit to memory. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you. Uh, that you love one another. Notice he says, as I have loved you. So he showed what that love looks like. He says that you also love one another. By this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God the Father, we see God the Son, both echoing the same thing. This is what identifies you as my people. That you love. But it's a love that needs to grow. And it's a love that we need to understand better. And we need to, be, oops, we need to be empowered to walk in better. And so Jesus gives us this promise about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit. God the Spirit also teaches us to love. Listen to this. Jesus said in John 14, 26, But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is, the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told, including how to love. But we also know this, according to what Paul says in Galatians 5, it's the Holy Spirit that produces this, this fruit in our lives, this fruit of love. And so when, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, look, you've been taught by God, he means, man, God has emphasized this in his commands and in his actions that love is paramount. And we need to keep growing in that. In fact, it's interesting, he says in verse 10, in the first part of verse 10, Paul writes, and indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you increase more and more. That's important because he's saying, look, we see that you have this committed love to all believers, even believers that aren't just there in Thessalonica, in your city, but believers all around that region of Macedonia. You've, you've shown that you have this committed God-inspired, God-motivated, God-generated love. You have this. Now, this, this is really crucial for us to get our head around. I know we talk about love quite a bit. I know it's, it's easy. We think it's easy to talk about love. But anyone who's tried to love the way God calls us to love knows it's no easy thing. We need God to teach us directly. What does it look like? How do we do this? We need God to change our hearts. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only person that ever comes to church and thinks, I don't really love these people. Maybe that's just me. But sometimes we do that. We don't have that affection in our heart that God has for his people. We don't have that for his people. We don't have that commitment in our actions that God has to his people. We don't always have that for his people. But we're called to this. We're called to this. Now this is important because when we talk about this love always growing, it means that we need to prioritize loving believers but pursue unbelievers. 
So, so it's, this is important because sometimes we, we talk about love and people said, oh, we just need, people like to say, we just need to love everybody. Let's just love everybody. That sounds nice, but how does that work? Because let's be honest, we can't logistically love everybody. If, if love is, if we want to say love is just a feeling, you can't say you have a feeling for love for everybody because you don't even know everybody. How can you love somebody you've never seen or met? So, so if you say, oh, we just want to love everybody that we know, well, love is action. So how are you going to fit that in 24 hours in a day? And so there, there is a degree of prioritizing, and the scripture says when it comes to prioritizing how we express God's love, how God wants us to prioritize the expression of God's love, it starts with his people, one another. And this is really, really important for us to understand. God calls us, to, as Jesus followers, to have a specific priority of love for one another for two reasons. One, because he has a specific priority love for us. And two, listen, because it demonstrates the love that he has for us and the love that he calls us to invite unbelievers into. People don't just need to hear the good news about Jesus' love, God's love for us shown through Christ's death and resurrection. People need to see the good news of Christ's love. And they do that because we are committed to one another. That's what we mean by prioritizing. It's a, it's a priority. But it doesn't mean that we, we prioritize our love relationships with believers and ignore unbelievers. That's not what we're saying. Uh, practically, listen to this. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 6. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So in other words, we don't say, Oh, sorry, non-Christian neighbor, I should be nice to you and pay attention to you, but... I'm on the, I, I want to call someone who's a Christian to make sure that I'm spending time with them first. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't just sit, spend so much time just kind of being generically nice to everyone and doing good to everyone that you neglect the priority of God's people. Because this is about being a witness to people who don't yet know God. And they need to see that there's something exclusive about the commitment that God has for his people. Now, so we're talking about God's love that is prioritizes believers but pursues unbelievers. But I talked about the fact that we're taught by God, and I think I forgot to say it's really important that when we talk about God's love, we're talking about that which must be experienced before it's expressed. So, so if you are here today and you're kind of new to this Jesus stuff and you're thinking about, okay, this sounds good, loving one another, being committed, uh, trying to do good, this is good stuff. This is the kind of stuff that I, I hope our culture and our society becomes. I want to do this. And you just try to mimic this stuff, you're going to be very frustrated. Because first of all, you're going to try to mimic it and you're going to go, I'm not sure how this works. Second of all, you're going to try to mimic it and, fi mimic, mimic it and find you have no power to do so. Or, or thirdly, you may think, okay, I think I, I understand about being self-sacrificing. Zach and I were talking about uh, a, a person in Golston who's not yet a Christian, but who puts a lot of Christians to shame by how concerned uh, uh, they are about, about their community and how much they invest in their community and the good of their community. But he's often very frustrated and he feels empty because what he wants to see happen in his community, he doesn't see it there, but he has come to church a few times and says, but I see it here. Oh, 
And we keep trying to say, it's because it's not about just the community, it's about Jesus. It's about his commitment to us. And therefore, we want to be committed to him and demonstrate that by being committed to each other. So this is what, we, what, what I'm, I think we need to understand. Love can only grow if we first experience it. If you are here today and you don't understand that God has offered his love to you in Christ, so that if you receive Christ's death for you, which pays for the sin that you should be paying for, if you have not understood that he's risen from the dead to guarantee that you can be forgiven and rendered innocent by God because the wrath that you deserve was put on himself, if you don't understand God's great love for you, you will not be able to love this way. See, this is bigger than just a nice ideal. This is an eternal reality that God has to produce in us and he starts by saying, do you understand that I'm offering this to you? Now the Thessalonians understood this. They had received God's love and they were trusting in God's love. Don't forget the context, even in the midst of some very serious persecution. And this is what's interesting to me. Because here's a, a people that Paul says, man, your love for God's people is so well known. Man, it's not just in your city, but all throughout Macedonia, the whole general area. People know how much you love God, how much you love one another, how much you love other believers. This is well known. And you're doing this in the midst of people treating you so badly, suffering so greatly, you're loving this way. And then Paul has what seems to be almost the audacity to say, but I want you to love a bit more. Is anything good enough for you, Paul? That's our kind of fleshly reaction to this. But here's the reality. What Paul's saying is, when he talks about them, uh, when he calls them to say in, in the end of verse 10, he says, look, I, we, we know you have this reputation, but he says, um, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, literally that you superabound. He's doing this not because he's saying, hey, what you're doing isn't good enough. He's not sliding them. He's just told them how much they rock at this loving God stuff and loving each other stuff. What he's saying to them is, listen, there's so much more of God's love to be understood, to be experienced, to be expressed. Paul prayed for the Ephesians this way. Listen to this. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prayed that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, that's all believers, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the, all the fullness of God. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, just like he wrote to the church in Thessalonians, and he says, you guys are doing well, but man, I'm praying that you can know God's love so much more and you can show God's love so much more. This is why I, get, I understand, but I get frustrated when I hear Christians be critical about, oh, I'm so sick of people preaching on love. How could you be sick of love? Maybe sick of the hypocrisy of people preaching love and not living love. I get that. Maybe sick of, of the fact that um, you try to love people by speaking the truth and they say, you're not being loving, brother, when all you're doing is trying to speak the truth. I get that. But how could we ever get sick of talking about this eternal 
amazing love that we've been invited into and it's been provided for us through Jesus. How can we get sick of that? And how can we, listen, how can we not desire to grow more and more in that? This is what Paul's wanting to say to the Thessalonians. He's saying, look, I know your life's tough, but man, press on, keep growing. So that's the first thing. Love that it's always growing. But also, listen, he gets really practical now. And, and, he, and, he, and he calls these guys to show, show love that expresses itself in what I'm calling humble ambition. Here's why I say this. Look at verse 9. I'm sorry, not verse 9. Look at verse 11. He says, that you, here's the expression of this love. He says, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. We'll talk about what those things are in a second, but I want you not to miss the word aspire. It's a word that literally means, listen, it means fond of honor. Isn't this interesting? To be fond of honor. Now, we as Christians, if you've been a Christian for a bit of time, if you know Scripture, you know we should not be the kind of people that want to exalt ourselves, should we? In fact, it's, Jesus said pretty plainly, you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. And that's not a good thing. It's good to be humble, but not be humbled. Plan A, humble yourself. Plan B, be humiliated. Let's take plan A, you know what I'm saying? And so so the the thing is, is that what what he's talking about here, though, is it's really important for us to get uh, around our heads. Ambition is a good thing. Wanting to be honored is a good thing. Looking for a reward is a good thing if you're looking to the right person to be honored by, to be rewarded you see, here's the, the reality. We, we need to have an ambition. We need to have a drive and an intention that says, man, I want to do well. We need to have that. Listen to this. Here's where ambition goes pear-shaped. This is what Jesus said about the, some of the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 12. It says, yet at the same time, actually this is John talking about this. It says, at the same time, Many, even among the leaders, believed in him. That's believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They would suffer socially, is the application for us. For they noticed they loved human praise more than praise from God. See, the problem wasn't that they had ambition. The problem was they had ambition that was based on what people thought about them. Jesus told this parable in Matthew 25 sort of about the final judgment when we all stand before God. And and here's the way he summed up the faithful person who stands before God. He says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come share your master's happiness. In telling this parable, why is he just telling this parable? To say that we should be motivated to hear from our master, well done, good and faithful servant. You know what you need to make that happen? Ambition. Not for your glory, not for glory that, that men might give to you, but for the glory of God. And to hear him say, well done. See, God wants us to have this. I think one of the things that concerns me about the church in the West is that we can be, we can be so kind of, uh, be such consumers in our mentality towards church that we're looking for a church product that we like. 
as opposed to following the Jesus that has given himself for us. It's not healthy. But with that, as, as, with a consumer mentality comes not so much what do I need to do, but what do these guys need to do to make sure that I want to stay in their church? By the way, it's not our church. It's our church. Actually, more so, it's his church. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's an apostrophe before the S in servants. Singular, servants. It ain't me. It's Jesus. It's the servant's church. Jesus is the servant, and it belongs to him. And so our mindset, listen, our mindset needs to be one of, of, a, of a humble ambition. Lord, I, I want to see your kingdom come, your will be done. I want to see you be glorified. I want people to look at my good works and glorify you. That's the kind of ambition God calls us to. And there's no better place for ambition than at work. Which brings us to the next bit of this verse in verse 11. Paul says, I want you to aspire. Here's your ambition. Ready? To lead a quiet life. It's almost like a, an oxymoron. I want you to be ambitious to not be so ambitious. He says, I want you to lead a quiet life. Notice, he says, to mind your own business. Now, we, we use that phrase in English to mean like, hey, bug out of my business. Get out of my business, right? That's what we mean, okay? But mind your own business is more about make sure you keep your responsibilities. It's less about telling somebody else off, and it's about you keeping your responsibilities. That's what, we mean. That's what it means when he says this. So the idea of mind your own business, listen, it's the idea of, of, of saying, okay, stick to your responsibilities. What are your responsibilities as an individual? What should you be doing? That's the idea. In fact, when he says here, when he says... Um, Work with your own hands, it's obvious. He says, look, I want you to be doing work that pays for you. Now, this is important because Paul seems to be here talking about um, people who refuse to work. So, so don't get confused here. He's not talking about the unemployed. There's legitimate reasons for people to be unemployed. But he's talking about the idle. So not, not talking about someone who doesn't have a job, but someone who refuses to have a job. Probably in this context, remember the whole context of 1 and 2 Thessalonians is, is uh, this new church, these new believers who, who have heard about the return of Christ. Paul had taught them about the second coming of Christ, but then other people had come along and confused them with stuff, and now they're thinking, have we missed it? What's going on? And there's probably some in this midst that go, no, 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 it's going to come soon, and you know, we're the ones who really care most, so we're not going to work. We're going to just tell people about Jesus. And because we have no way to feed our families, we're going to just let the church kind of make sure that they, they take care of us. We're going to kind of put ourselves on the, the dole because that's the only thing there was. The, the only welfare system back then was the church. And so basically, we're going to just make the church take care of us because we're too spiritual to do anything but really just kind of go around and preach the gospel and get our nose in everybody else's business. And so Paul's kind of addressing this. Now, it's interesting because if you go over to chapter 5, verse uh, 14. You don't have to go there. It'll be on the screen. But in chapter 5, verse 14, we see that uh, there's a, a command that Paul will give that we'll talk about when we get to chapter 5, where he says, warn those who are unruly. And we really believe that this is referring to the same people here who are idle. Uh, the NIV says, warn those who are idle. Uh, New Living Translation says, warn those who are lazy, even plainer. And so the idea here is, again, not someone who's unemployed, but someone who's idle, someone who, 
who doesn't want to actually work and provide for themselves. They don't want to be responsible, and they're trying to hide behind hide, uh, their irresponsibility behind this cloak of spirituality. Paul said, that's bogus. That's not God's love. There, there's a lot of factors that went into the prosperity of the British Empire. A lot of factors that have gone into the prosperity of the colonies and former colonies that have continued to be the most prosperous in the world. Some of those factors were unjust. I'm completely aware of that. But one of the factors that wasn't unjust was what um, sociologists and historians call the Protestant work ethic. Which was this idea that you're not just working to make money. You're not just working because somebody's trying to rule over you. You're working because you want to bring glory to God through your work. And that work ethic is, is one of the factors that brought financial prosperity to the British colonies. It's true. Not the only factor. I know there's some unjust stuff, that, unjust stuff that happened as well. But that is one of the factors. There is something unique among religion and philosophy that starts with Christianity. It's based in the very work of Jesus himself that says, if the Lord has given everything for us, we want to give everything for him. We want to do it back to him including in the workplace. We want to work as unto God. Can you see how that kind of motivation could cause you to endure when you have the most horrible boss? Or when you get passed over for a raise? Or when a professor marks you down because you reference your faith in your paper, even when it's appropriate? When your motivation is, I want to see God's love exalted, I want to see God glorified, you work this way. And to not work this way is to not love. This is what Paul says. Notice what he says in the last part of of verse 11. He says that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands. Notice, as we commanded you, Paul's not saying, as we suggested would be better for you, that would help you prosper. No, he says, this is a command. This is a command from God. This is God's will for you. Remember, this is how the chapter started. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Started off by talking about sexual morality and how that shouldn't be a part of our lives as Christians. Now he's talking about work. And he's saying idleness, laziness, being a bad employee is not love and is not God's will for you. Now, this is not ignoring the injustices that happen at work. It's not. We'll talk more about that in in future weeks. Specifically, we're going to talk about the whole issue of slavery, the whole issue of of sort of the rich oppressing the poor. In in a couple months, when we get to the little postcard epistle of, of Philemon, but for, for now, we, we want to stick with the context here. Paul's talking about those in the midst of Thessalonia who, who acted like they loved God's people but refused to actually work as an expression of God's love. 1 Timothy uh, 6 says this. He says, all who, all who are under the yoke of slavery, and, and we'll, we can apply this, I think, to employ, being employees, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should show them, should not show them disrespect because just because 
uh, they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow brother, uh, believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Again, we'll talk about the whole context, New Testament context of slavery when we get to Philemon in a couple months. But the point here that's really important for us to understand is that Paul wants us to see that we, our work life is meant to have and has this amazing potential to bring great glory to God. I mean, isn't that good news? David Mounser and I were, were working on the church property. To be fair, David was doing most of the work, and I was saying, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> so we were pulling wire and stuff, and we had talked uh, uh, some days earlier about, he was saying how much he loves to be able to do this, to use the talents he has for the kingdom of God. He was very thankful to be able to do that, and I'm really thankful that he's thankfully doing it. Among many, many others who are doing lots of stuff. But we were talking about this and, and about the, the, the mindset. Because one of the things I think David said was, sometimes it feels like what's, really imp- what's only important in church is the guys who are up front who can teach or who can sing or whatever. As if this is the only place that God's glory is shown. But let's be honest, we're here for what? Or we have long services for so maybe three hours on a Sunday. We're here for three hours on a Sunday. Do you think God only wants to make himself known three hours on a Sunday? Absolutely not. God wants to make himself known through the 36, 46, 56 hours a week that you work. Hopefully not 56. (laughs) God wants to show himself. He wants to glorify himself. Make his love known by how you work. This is what he wants to do. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? That God can have more of an impact on your, uh, through your life than he ever could through what we do. That is, we as in the, those in leadership here. God wants to do this. In fact, it's interesting because Paul says really specifically here, doesn't he, in verse 12, he says that you may walk properly towards who? Those who are outside. See, we're not just talking about a love that expresses itself in humble ambition. We're talking about a love that is honorable among the unconvinced. And I call them unconvinced, not unbelievers. Not because they're not unbelievers yet, because many, most of them are. But unconvinced because I think God has us in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, that our lives would be convincing of the truth of the gospel that we speak. He wants our lives to be convincing. He, he has to do this work. And he wants to do this work in a way that convinces others that Jesus is trustworthy. Now, it's interesting because in verse 12, he talks about that you may walk properly. Some of your versions may say honestly. And the idea here is, it's an idea about having integrity. Specifically about having integrity with our relationships with those that are on the outside, those that aren't believers. How do we treat people who aren't Christians? Remember we said earlier that the love that we're called to grow in is a love that prioritizes God's people but pursues those who are not yet God's people. So how do we have integrity in those relationships? Well, let's let's understand this. Unbelievers have a right to look at us as Jesus followers and expect our lives to be different. Now, not perfect, If they think our lives should be perfect, they probably don't understand the gospel, and we need to humbly admit we are so far from perfect. 
in fact, let me give you this practical advice. When you mess up in front of your unbelieving friends, your unconvinced friends, which you will do, we all do, go to them and apologize. I was wrong, forgive me. Even if they don't think it's that big of a deal. You know, that was a bad example. I know that's not what Jesus would have me do. Forgive me, because I really want you to know him, and he's a lot better than I've been showing. Don't be surprised about what kind of an example that can be. But, but this is what we're called to. We're called to, to have some integrity in our relationships. That we act a different way. I wonder if sometimes this is why we don't want to say that we're Christians at work. Because we know the expectations will be there. I'll be honest, this is why I don't have Christian bumper stickers on my car. Just being, being real here. Being real. I'm a rubbish driver. I am, you need to pray for me. I'm such a bad driver. No exaggeration there, is it, babe? <laughs> really bad. We, we, we don't want that, but God wants that for us. God wants to do something through us. And, and his heart is, and our heart needs to be, winning these people over. So, so the, the idea is that we have an integrity in our relationships, but we're evangelistic in our motivations. Let me be clear. It's not always a good witness to always be preaching Jesus at people at your work. It's especially not a good witness if you're a rubbish employee. But if you're trying to be a good employee, if you're wanting to serve and lay down your life to demonstrate the gospel of God at work, if you're doing that, then you should expect people will say why, and you have a chance to talk about Jesus. And we should be motivated by that. Listen, Peter says this, and this is good news again, because even if things aren't going so well, even if people don't like us at our work, here's what Peter says. Peter says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now this is interesting, because Peter's saying, listen, here's, here's the motivation I want you to have. I want you to live in such a way that even if people don't like the way they live, they cannot deny there's something good about your behavior. There's something good about the integrity that you show. So that they know one day when they see God face to face, they're going to say, we have no excuse. Because that guy, that, that girl, that woman, there was something different about them and the way they treated us and the way they treated them customers and the way they treated other employers. There was something different. God's calling us to live this way. Why? Because every single person is going to face God and we want them to face God with Jesus because without Jesus, it's destruction. Without Jesus, we're left to our own devices and that's a bad thing. Now he, he finishes this little section by saying this in verse 12. He says, that, you know, walk properly, have this integrity toward those who are outside that you also may lack nothing. Now this means a couple different things. This could be talking about these people who weren't working in the sense that they were putting the burden on someone else to meet their responsibilities, right? To meet their financial needs. They weren't willing to work, all right? But this also could refer to people who maybe were willing to work, but they were thinking, how come these people don't have to work? And so they were actually coveting that opportunity. Gosh, I wish I didn't have to work. Or I wish I could have what those other people have. Now, we're really good at coveting, aren't we? I mean, we excel at trying to keep up with the Joneses, which if you didn't recognize, is coveting. This is what we do. Oh, man, I wish I had a car like them. Oh, I wish I had a house like them. 
I wish I had a mortgage I can't afford. Man, I really wish that was the case for me. We're like this. And Paul's saying, listen, this is not going to, this is not honorable among the unconvinced. You know, I feel so guilty that, that I, I, I was con- confessing and repenting of this this week. I was having to say to the Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, change me. Because I was complaining in front of an unbeliever. I was kind of making light about it, but I was complaining about this thing or that thing. And, and, and as soon as we got, he was, he, was, he was laughing and agreeing with me. And so I thought, oh, I'm, I'm building a bridge. No, I wasn't. I was burning a bridge. Because I was acting just like he would act, complaining about something I had no right to complain about. Why? Because I wasn't content. You see, a love that is honorable among the unconvinced is a love that's content with their possessions. You're content with what you have. You believe there's a God who is both completely in control, he's sovereign, and loves you perfectly. And if he says in his love, this is what I got for you, okay, Lord, you know best. I'm content. That kind of love is what convinces unbelievers that there's more to life than just keeping up with the Joneses. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up as we get ready to remember the Lord's table. Go to the Lord's table and take communion together. As they come up, I'm going to close with this verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where the author of Hebrews says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. People need to see in our lives that we have Jesus, and so we're content with whatever else comes into our life. Let me be clear about one more thing before we close this idea. There's nothing wrong with making money. The Bible does, nowhere does the Bible condemn making lots of money. Nowhere. You're not going to find it. Having lots of money, making lots of money, the Bible never condemns that anywhere. What it condemns is loving money, always desiring more money. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. That's what the scripture condemns. Hey man, make as much money as you can. Go for it. Give it away after that. Learn to be content. Learn to say, God, what would you have me do with the money you put in my hands? If your work is just about making money, You're not walking in the love of God. If your work is about, God, I want to know your love better through this job that you've sovereignly given me, and I want to show your love better through this job that you've sovereignly given me, then God's going to meet you there. And God's going to use you there.